Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. In the 10th century, a time of stark religious divides in Europe, nothing was more authentically multicultural than the business of supplying eunuchs. German warriors on the eastern flank of Christendom, fighting the wars of the Saxon emperors, would take huge numbers of Slavs captive. The most attractive boys among them would then be taken to Verdun, where Jewish surgeons would castrate them, removing the testicles and sometimes the penis. The boys would then be transported across the Pyrenees, taken across Spain to the Islamic Emirates in the south and sold into the palaces there. Welcome to The Rest is History. With me is Dominic Sandbrook. Dominic, crossing your legs? This is quite a painful subject, isn't it, Tom? I, I enjoyed researching this in a weird way, but I also found it very hard to have my dinner afterwards. Um, yes, we had, yes. We had meatballs, unfortunately, so it wasn't ideal. There, there are there are so many kind of gruesome jokes on this, and and yet of course it is at bottom, as it were, a, a tale of considerable suffering. It is, and I guess it's the only way we can. The only reason we can do it, Tom, is because it doesn't happen anymore. Because if it was a, sca- a living scandal, then you wouldn't do a sort of hu- semi-humorous podcast about it, because it is an utterly gruesome business, isn't it? Although, of course, I mean, the, the, the looking on the positives, yeah. <laughs> um, as we will see, um, becoming a eunuch wasn't always totally 100% bad news because it was also a way to becoming um, a very significant player in the kind of societies where eunuchs had considerable power. And so basically what we decided was that we would uh, we did the top 10 weird wars, didn't we? Um, and today we're going to do the top 10 eunuchs. Yes, we've got. I mean, how could, how to narrow it down to 10 is an interesting question because there are so many great eunuchs, but I think we've got a good selection. Well, at least I have. So you've chosen five and I've chosen five. Um, do you want to uh, kick off? Sure. Well, I'm going to kick off with the eunuch's eunuch, as I like to think of him, the connoisseur's eunuch. Uh, so he's a, he's a fellow called Bagoas. So some listeners will know of Bagoas because basically he he ends up being picked up by Alexander the Great. So Alexander has invaded Persia. Um, he's defeated the Persian king Darius and he he's sort of charging up through the Persian Empire. And he ends up on the near the shores of the Caspian in a place called Harcania. And there, according to the accounts of Alexander's life, he he basically sort of picks up this guy who's been a eunuch for Darius. Now, the Persians, like almost all ancient empires, had eunuchs. They had eunuchs in their court. And, of course, a eunuch is, is useful to a, to an emperor or to a king because they can't have children. So they can't, they're not really a rival. They can't found a dynasty of their own. So they are sort of seen as trustworthy in that sense. They're sort of good hangers-on. And Bagoas is, a, is clearly a young man. We don't know that much about him. Um, the sources say he was exceptional in beauty and in the very flower of boyhood. And ever we, we really don't know that much. There's one source, Quintus Curtius Rufus, who writes centuries after the event, a Roman writer. And he says, he basically paints a very unflattering portrait of Bagoas. He's cunning. He is sort of feline. He, he has this big description of him outsmarting. Um, a local satrap called Orsines, and basically poisoning Alexander's mind against him. But it's very hard to know whether that there's any truth in that, or whether that's just sort of a Roman projecting this stuff onto Alexandria, onto the Persians, and onto the Greeks. You know, this sort of cunning, effeminate behaviour. So you don't know how much prejudice there is in this, rather than actual sort of historical source material. Um, there is a good story in Plutarch. Plutarch says that when Alexander was coming back from India. Um, he's he's just got back this dreadful sort of desert crossing and they have this big sort of basically they have a big piss up where they all get drunk and they all do singing and dancing. Alexander is absolutely loaded. He's completely wasted. And Bagoas does a bit of singing and dancing and he wins a competition. And the Macedonian soldiers all shout and roar and tell Alexander that he should kiss him. And Alexander, he says, says Plutarch, threw his arms around him and embraced him tenderly. 
Now, what is very hard to tell from all this is whether was Bagoas really Alexander's lover, as some people think he, he may have been? Was he an interpreter, a kind of go-between with the local Persian notables who Alexander met as he kind of went through the empire? Um, but, but what's interesting is that he is a romanticized eunuch. So he's most famously the hero of Mary Reynolds book The Persian Boy. So Mary Reynolds used him in a great one of her, the centerpiece of her great trilogy about Alexander. She uses Bagoas as the narrator. So we're with Bagoas when he's castrated. We see Alexander through We his, are so with Bagoas. Yeah, it's a terrible scene, aren't we? So any male who has read that sequence that's definitely you crossing your legs. But it's a really interesting one because Mary Reynolds was a, of course a gay writer. So there's this sort of gay subtext in a lot of her ancient world books. And in this, the Alexander-Bagoas um, relationship is this sort of great love story, isn't it? So Bagoas is the one guy who really... Everybody else is a conniving politician. But Bagoas is the one person who loves Alexander and is true to him and has no agenda. Um, which is obviously completely the opposite of the way that the Roman sources, so Quintus Curtius Rufus, painted him as having this sort of colossal agenda. I mean, this sort of conniving, foppish figure. And I guess that that cuts to the heart, as it were, <laughs> of the way we, we sort of see eunuchs. So people, you know, people had eunuchs because they thought they were reliable, because they thought they could be trusted. But for a lot of people, there is some there was something inherently untrustworthy, I think because or unnatural about a eunuch and that explains the sort of the dualism with which they've often been seen in in historical sources so so mine following up on that is a roman eunuch and we don't know his real name but the name he was given was sporus yeah basically kind of greek for spunk so a, a kind of very cruel nickname um and he was uh, not a slave but a, a free a free boy um, who who got castrated by the Emperor Nero. And he got castrated for a very particular reason, which was that Nero was, was absolutely madly in love with his wife, who had the fabulous name Papaya Sabina. Uh, and, and like Pete Townsend, she said, hope, hope I die before I get old. Um, this was her great thing. She She's basically the kind of archetype for a lot of the myths about luxurious women that get projected onto Cleopatra. So she's the one who supposedly bathed in ass's milk. Okay. She had a, 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 brand, a range of cosmetics that was the most fashionable in Rome. Um, so men wanted to sleep with her. Women wanted to be her. She was just tremendously um, cutting edge. But near, she died. And the rumour was that, that she was pregnant with um, Nero's child. And Nero came in late from the races uh, she nagged him. Nero kicked her in the stomach and the resulting miscarriage killed her. We don't know whether that's true, but it's definite that Nero's grief was on a titanic scale. And although he marries again, a kind of again, of a kind of very classy, sophisticated Roman woman, he missed Papaya so badly that he wanted to have her physically with him. And so he sends scouts out to look for someone who looks like Papaya and they find this boy who looks like Papaya. So he's clearly incredibly beautiful young boy. And that, of course, is a major reason for, for castration, is that you halt the the, the process of puberty. Um, and the, the Romans were very keen on that. So there's all kinds of... They, they would rub um, ants' eggs on, onto the armpits to stop hair from growing, um, and blood from lambs' testicles onto the cheeks to stop the beard from growing. But the most brutal thing that you did was was to castrate someone. So this is what Nero does. And so this 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 poor boy gets called Papaya Sabina and gets dressed in Papaya's robes, has his hair done as Papaya had done. And wherever Nero goes, this, this sporous Papaya goes and lives out the life not as a eunuch, but as a wife. And this is so so, so it's a kind of terrible story. It's a terrible story. And at one point, shortly before Nero um, gets toppled and commits suicide, Papaya Sporus gives to Nero um, an image of uh, Proserpina being abducted by Pluto. So um, the, the daughter of, of, of the goddess of the harvest being raped by the god of death and taken down into the underworld. And you can see all the kind of psychological wow, resonances there. Sad. And then when, when Nero dies... Um, Papaya Sabina is there with him, kind of mourns him, plays the, the role of the mourning wife, gets picked up by um, the, the head of the Praetorians 
um, so the, the imperial guard in Rome, very, very sinister guy called um, Nymphidius Sabinus, who claimed to be the illegitimate son of Caligula. Um, certainly, if it was, it <laughs> inherited quite a lot of the unpleasantness. He wants to make himself emperor and he seizes Sporus as a kind of trophy, as a kind of icon of of imperial rule. He 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 falls by the wayside. Um, Galba, a kind of upstanding, upright figure who would have no time with eunuch brides, um, becomes emperor, but rapidly gets dispatched in turn, gets succeeded by a guy called Otho, who had previously been Popea's husband. And Nero had got rid of him so that he could marry Popea. He then picks up Sporus Popea and obviously is, is transfixed by him, him, her as well. He he gets dispatched by a guy called Vitellius, who then arrives in Rome, declares himself emperor and announces that um, his what he's going to do with Sporus is put him into the arena and have him gang raped by presumably by 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 gladiators dressed as Hades. So to kind of replicate this thing, at which point poor Sporus kills himself. Wow. And that's not a good it's, story. It's a horrible, horrible story that kind of reminds you of the the scale of the brutality and the cruelty that could underpin how old is Sporus, Tom? How do you know how old he is? Twelve or thirteen? Like I mean, just on what the cusp terrible, of puberty, what a I would imagine. Story. So maybe this is a very good moment. Quickly, we've talked about two ancient eunuchs. Now, what is it about? I mean, in your to to as an ancient historian, what is it about eunuchs that made them so attractive to you know ancient courts? Why do people want them? Why is there this huge trade in them? Why are people, you know, they seem so. Um, they, they seem so disturbing to us, but clearly they weren't disturbing. You know, weren't disturbing to Alexander, weren't disturbing to Nero. What is it about them? Well, I, I, I think we've touched on all of them. They, they, they can't, um, they can't have sex or get women pregnant. But they can have sex. They can have sex because it's often said eunuchs were great lovers. But they can't have sex and have women get get women pregnant. So archetypally, they are used to guard harems. Uh, as also, as you said, they can't have children. Again, they can't have children, so they can't. They they are, are seen to be more loyal. And as in the case of Sporus, and pr- probably in the case of Bagoas, I mean, we would guess their their physical beauty. It's it's the idea of of keeping that physical beauty intact and not letting them kind of sprout whiskers or acne or whatever. But the one other question that you raised um, is that um, so you said Galba wasn't the kind of person who would have any time for eunuchs. So are there always people who think there's something wrong about them? Who are uh, who are opposed on principle to eunuchism, if that's a uh, word. Yeah, in the in the Roman court, definitely in the Roman court, they're seen as as sinister and Oriental. Yeah, um, not the kind of thing that an upstanding Roman would have, and so they become um, kind of countercultural for people who want to push things out. So, so Mycenas, Augustus's um, great advisor, he's flanked by two eunuchs. And this is a kind of mark of his willing that, you know, he's kind of tweaking the noses of the right. respectable establishment. Right. So Janus, who is um, uh, Tiberius's consigliere, um, he has a he has a, um, a eunuch called Boy Toy. <laughs> oh obviously, you can see why he's and again, he's you know, it's 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 kind of pushing the edge out, I guess. Um, but but in due course, um, as we as we will see when we come to my next choice, um, actually, the Roman world becomes more habituated to eunuchs but what's it what's your next uh, okay so i'm going far forward in time am i allowed to we're, we're sort of ranging about chronologically aren't we so i'm going to rush forward because this isn't somebody who is who is a sort of institutionalized eunuch he's not he's somebody who's um he's a bit of a one-off he's called thomas h corbett boston corbett so i know you know this story tom because we were talking about it earlier uh so he is the man basically to cut the long story short he's the man who shoots and kills um john wilkes booth the assassin of Abraham Lincoln. And so this is a different kind of eunuch because this is somebody who is basically auto-castrated rather than had it done to him as a boy. So it's quite a sad story, this, actually. They're all sad stories in their way, but this is a, a particularly disturbing story, I think, because he's clearly mad. He's born in London in 1832. He moves to New York. I mean, he's as mad as a hatter because he is a hatter. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, that expression comes from the fact that Hatter's worked with a substance called mercury nitrate and mercury nitrate would basically poison you and it could make you mentally ill. And this seems to be what happened to Boston Corbett. So he, he moves to Boston, which is why he gets the name, the nickname Boston. 
Um, his wife has died in childbirth and that clearly has sort of pushed him over the edge in some way because he becomes a street preacher and basically what we would now think of as he's a kind of religious maniac really he's a sort of fundamentalist he he's he believes god is talking to him he believes the world is sinful and all this stuff and in 1858 he's walking down the street in boston when he's accosted by two prostitutes and we don't know exactly what happened but we know that he found the encounter very disturbing in some way clearly presumably he was aroused or he was tempted or, or something so he goes back and he he reads his bible for a bit and he reads the bit in i think matthew where it's like if your eye offends you pluck it out if your hand you know cut it off and he thinks well obviously the thing to do is castrate myself and he does with a pair of scissors don't listen to this while you're um while you're eating your dinner he basically cuts himself open and takes his testicles out then unbelievably he goes and he goes out for a meal he goes out to like a restaurant or something and then he goes to a prayer meeting and only after that does he check into does he basically go to hospital and say oh by the way i'm i'm hideously mutilated can you please sort me out so after that he joins the union army um he's he's incredibly insubordinate he's always in trouble because because of his religious mania basically so when people give him orders he often disobeys them because he says God's given him a different order. He's always saying he doesn't want to obey his officers because they're swearing or drinking or something. Um, and he is the is he's among the people who are sent to capture John Wilkes Booth, and they're told bring him back alive, don't shoot him. He shoots him, so he he gets in trouble for that. But he then sort of trades on that. He goes around. You know, we were talking in our Wild West podcast about the about the media in America in this period, and he's a celebrity. He goes and gives talks as the man who shot John Wilkes Booth, but that all sort of ends in tears. He becomes a hatter again. He becomes a preacher. He basically becomes a mad, a sort of itinerant madman. At one point, he's the porter of the Kansas House of Representatives, a job he loses because he's sort of madly muttering to himself and waving a gun around. And even in Kansas, which is kind of lawless in those days, people think this is a bit much and this is not ideal kind of porter behaviour. Um, and we don't really know. People think he probably died in a forest fire in Minnesota as a sort of, sort of loony. It's a very, very sad and strange story. Um, but he so that's another reason for cast for castration isn't it is religious mania yeah i think those are the two regions i i've got more religious maniacs to come tom i've got more i've got i've got all the religious maniacs you might want so so there were there were um the priests of kibale the mother goddess right thought that they were called by the mother goddess to castrate themselves and so this was very much their gimmick was that they would castrate themselves and then roam the streets waving their their testicles oh, in, in in the air gosh. so that that was very much that was all part of the fun. Yeah. Um, but I, I've also got someone who reputedly castrated himself um, because he, he felt that um, Christ wanted it. Um, and that is the great church father, Origen. Ah, yes. Yeah. I, I think the, the, the most brilliant of the church fathers, um, born in, in Alexandria in the, the late second century AD. Um, and he, more than anyone else, fuses these two great traditions that you have in Alexandria of the Greek and the Jewish. So he's a brilliant philosopher. He's completely schooled in Hebrew scripture. And he kind of blends the two to, to create the kind of basically Christian theology. So essentially, he's, he's the as much as anyone does, he's the father of Christian theology. So he's a brilliant, brilliant man. And the story is according to Eusebius, who is um, a, a Palestinian bishop in the early 4th century, a biographer of, of Constantine the Great, author of um, the, the first history of the, ch the Christian church, great admirer of Origen. And he says that Origen castrated himself. And he did this again because he was mandated by his understanding of scripture. And the verse in scripture, it came from Matthew, and it was um, this line, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. So that's Matthew 19, 12. And supposedly Origen was influenced by this to castrate himself. Now, did he really? Very, very serious doubts about this. So Origen supposedly told a bishop in Alexandria, a guy called Demetrius, that he'd done this in strictest confidence right. and this is where eusebius got it from but there are two reasons to doubt this account the first is that demetrius and, and origin had an enormous bust up 
um, Demetrius felt that that that, um, that uh, Origen was kind of insubordinate, was too clever for his own boots, was was kind of getting above himself. So you could absolutely imagine that this is the kind of snide, yeah. uh, malevolent yeah. backstabbing. So, that, um, so Demetrius that, that wouldn't be saying on. it in praise. He would be saying this man literally has no balls, basically. Supposedly, he initially approved it and then just changed his mind. Right. But the other reason to doubt it is that um, Origen actually wrote a huge commentary on Matthew and he wrote on this very verse and he said, don't do it. (laughs) But he could be speaking from experience. He might say, I've made a terrible mistake. Don't don't be my mistake. Yeah, he could be because he says that people have castrated themselves and that these people have, you know, people who've castrated themselves... um, people get reproach you know they, they, they draw reproach they draw scandal upon themselves so he might have been talking about himself personally i doubt it so perhaps i shouldn't have included him but he's very famous as someone who might have been right. a eunuch yeah he's my choice we've got time for one more i think so i think what's really interesting about lots of these eunuchs tom is that um they're shrouded in so much mystery aren't they and that's what makes them fascinating because people project onto them and they they you know what they want they see what they want to see and and my next example is a great example of that because he's a man called samson rowley and um, a few listeners on, on Twitter said, are you going to talk about Samson Rowley? But of course, the problem with him is we don't really know very much. So what we know about him is he's a Norfolk merchant's son in the 16th century. Um, he's probably from Great Yarmouth. His father came from Bristol. So they're clearly involved in the kind of mercantile world. And in 1577, Samson Rowley is on the ship called the Swallow, which is captured by, um, seems to be captured by the Ottomans. And I assume a lot of the people on the ship were killed, but he wasn't. He's castrated and turned into a eunuch. And he converts to Islam. He takes the name Hassan Aga. And he pitches up in Algiers, which is the sort of outlying uh, possession, basically, of the Ottoman Empire. And he becomes um, the sort of treasurer of Algiers. So he basically uh, rises through conversion and through becoming a eunuch. Um, he's the supposed. This is not uncommon. So the chief executioner of Algiers was a butcher from Exeter at the same time, a man called Absalom. Um, and in fact, the man who was running Algiers, who was Uluch Ali, or Occhiali in Italian, was a former galley slave from southern Italy. So that shows you something about how the Ottoman Empire worked. That basically you could be captured and imprisoned and then work your way up. So clearly there's a premium on people with experience from elsewhere. And, and you would think that Rowley, the reason Rowley becomes the treasurer is because he's a merchant, because he knows his way around a ledger. I mean, he's, he's lost his, his genitals, but he knows, still knows how to sort of balance a, a budget. So he becomes the treasurer. Um, there is a picture of him that shows him with a white turban, very pale skin and kind of rosy cheeks. Although having said that, because he's castrated at a late stage, it's unlikely that it would have had a massive impact on his appearance. So this is probably, again, a bit more projection. But there's one source that people always pick up on, which is basically a letter from Elizabeth I's ambassador um, to him to say, can you use your influence um, to release some slaves? You know, so he's so it's he's often used as a kind of window into this relationship between Elizabeth and the Ottomans, because, of course, they both hate the Catholic powers. So this was a period when Elizabethan England was sort of trying to forge some links with the Mediterranean. Global England. Oh, exactly. Global. Yes, exactly. Um, but that's really all we know of Samson Rowley. So a lot of people find him a fascinating figure, particularly now, because, of course, people are very in- historians are very interested now in kind of interest in sort of wacky multicultural links and in links between England and the Islamic world and so on. So he sort of looms much larger as a historical figure now, probably than he's ever done before. But we know so little about him. And there is this sort of story, I haven't really seen any sources for it, that at some point people said to him, why don't you come back to England? Why don't you come back to Great Yarmouth? And he said, you know, I'm fine. I'm in Algiers. I'm the, tre- I'm the <laughs> chief treasurer. Why do I kind of want to, you know, run a warehouse in, in Great Yarmouth when I could be a very important person in North Africa with this nice climate and eating tagines or whatever he's, whatever he's up to? That's part of the story that clearly goes all the way back to, to the 10th century and before because the, the scale of the slave trade of people from Europe going into the the islamic world is is absolutely enormous again perhaps something that we could we could do a few but tom isn't the interesting on. question with him 
would you rather I mean, it's interesting. I wonder if would would he rather have kept his genitals and stayed in Norfolk? Yeah, I, yes, it's 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 an impossible. It's a question, question for Alan Partridge, surely. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I, I think on that on that part on that bombshell. Uh, time for a break. <laughs> Welcome back to the rest is history on the. Um, very squirm-worthy subject of eunuchs. Now, we've done five of our top ten eunuchs, and Tom Holland, as always, has a eunuch up his sleeve. Uh, Tom, <laughs> um, Tom, who's your eunuch? Never knowingly without a eunuch. <laughs> yes, so so mine mine is, is I think, um, one of the most remarkable figures in Byzantine history. So this is um, the Roman Empire. Uh, it's it's in the east, centred in Constantinople. Um, Rome and Italy has fallen to the barbarians. Um, in, uh, in in Constantinople, the um, emperors there are not very happy about that. And the greatest Roman emperor of the 6th century, Justinian, has his eyes on on the reconquest of Italy. Um, and the guy who leads that is, is Belisarius, who isn't a eunuch, um, but therefore could potentially be a danger to the, uh, to, to, to the emperor. And so the guy who takes over from Belisarius as the, uh, the the guy who's in charge of, of bringing Italy back into the Roman Empire is a eunuch, um, a, a, a guy of Armenian extraction called Narses. And we don't really know how or why he became a eunuch, but we know that he is essentially kind of, again, very influential figure in the, in the kind of in the treasury of Constantinople. This idea that essentially the treasury should be run by eunuchs, I think is a kind of interesting one that perhaps... <laughs> I'm trying Perhaps. to think of recent chancellors of the Exchequer: Philip Hammond, George Osborne, <laughs> Gordon Brown. But Narses plays um, a role in the, the kind of the great sports scandal um, of, of Constantinople when, um, in five three two, when the uh, two rival teams in the um, in, in the Hippodrome, um, the Blues and the Greens, rival factions supporting different chariot te- teams there's a spectacular riot and the riot basically ends up burning down central Constantinople. And they can do this because freakishly the blues and the greens have teamed up. Normally they're inveterate enemies and Narses plays a role in um, getting the blues back on side so that then Justinian soldiers can slaughter the greens. And that's the kind of classic role of the kind that you get in game of Thrones with Varys, Mm. Um, the guy operating behind wheeling, dealing, offering bribes, pulling strings. Um, Varys is is certainly as played in the, uh, in the, in the TV drama is um, a large, a large man. Uh, Narcissus was a thin man, very thin and slight, but it turns out he comes, becomes a brilliant general and he goes to Italy after Belisarius has been called back at a kind of incredible age. I mean, he's he first goes there when he's in his 60s, does incredibly well, gets recalled, then goes out in his 70s. Uh, and he goes there because all the other generals have failed against the, a, a Gothic king who's refusing to accept defeat. Narses defeats him. Um, he then defeats a bunch of Franks um, who, who are very contemptuous of him um, as, a, as, as a eunuch. Um and he then uh, he he celebrates Rome's last triumph. So he takes his prisoners and his gold and his loot through the streets of Rome. And this is the very last wow. guy to do it. What a it. way for Rome to, to, to bow out. <laughs> I know. And, and I mean, imagine in the age of Nero saying that the last Roman who will celebrate a triumph will be a eunuch. No one would have believed it. And he then organises Italy very, very effectively and efficiently for 12 years. Um right the way into his late 80s um justinian dies a, a new emperor comes and it's said that the the empress is very contemptuous of him um and sends him a golden spindle and says because you're a eunuch you shouldn't be organizing you know armies and states and things you should come home and organize uh, the, the the women weaving and narcissus it is said um says well well i can I, I i will weave you such a tapestry as you will never unpick and the the story is is that he, his last dying thing is to send a message to the lombards who are the most terrifying enemy that the uh, that the, the, the the byzantine empire faces in italy who invade um 
in the last months of, of Nasi's life. But I, th- that story, I think, is untrue. But I think what is true is that the Lombards are waiting for Nazis to die before launching their invasion, which is a kind of incredible tribute to him. Would he have, would he have fought himself? Would he have gone into battle? Would he... Yes, he's a, he's, a, he's a very, very brilliant general. And he kind of mixes and matches his, his heavy infantry and his pikemen and his cavalry to, to brilliant effect. He's one of the great, great generals of antiquity. I mean, he's kind of, you know, up there with, with Hannibal. And, and he's an amazing, amazing guy. Wow. And of course, if he hadn't been a eunuch, he would have been a threat to the emperor. So he'd never have got that role. And, well, he would ne- and he would never have got into the court of Constantinople. So he would never have come to the emperor's attention. So he's another winner. He's another, you know... He's a winner. So losing your testicles can be a a huge kind of career advantage. Well, my next choice is a man who definitely benefited from losing his testicles. So almost all the people... Well, we've talked about ancient people and we've talked about a religious maniac. I mean, this is somebody who loses his testicles basically for commercial reasons. And he's a castrato singer, Farinelli, probably the most famous of all castrato singers. Now, we think of this as as a... must think of this as a very weird thing, but in the 18th century, about 5,000 boys a year were castrated in Italy, um, generally by their parents. For They often came from poor families, and because it was technically illegal, the parents would always come up with a pretext. They'd say he was being kicked in the groin by a, a horse, or he was born um, without them, or he's had some, you know, he's fallen over and had some accident that means they have to be removed. And they basically did this because they wanted them to be singers, and they wanted them to make a lot of money. And that's what happens with Farinelli. So he come, his father was the Kapellmeister at Andrea Cathedral in southern Italy. He's born in 1705. And so he's from quite a well-off family. But his father died when he was young and the family needed money. And he was a good singer. So when he's 12, they have him castrated. So he's not, he's not that young. I mean, he's, he's 12 it's years old. It's kind of like going to choir school, isn't it's it? It's awful. I mean, he's, you know, there's no anaesthetic. Um, they would sort of, I think they'd give kids opium often. And they would bathe them in some sort of milk. Uh, but you've got to imagine quite a lot of people probably die in the operation or, or suffer hideous infections and things. But anyway, he doesn't die. He's a, he's a very good singer, Farinelli. And he, uh, he becomes famous across Italy. He's known as Il Ragazzo, the boy. He sings in Parma and Milan and places like that. He goes off to Vienna. And then in 1734, he ends up in London. And he's a huge hit. I mean, he's a great star. He makes so much money. So he makes £5,000 a year. And I did the calculation. You can you can do the calculations online. There's a special sort of website called Measuring Worth. And in terms of earning power, that's he's making about ten million pounds a year. Um, in the so he is a massive, massive star. He goes to Versailles, and then he ends up finally in Madrid, and he's basically the big singing star in Madrid. And then he retires to Bologna when he's had enough. And he's visited, I mean, he's such a celebrity. He's visited by Mozart and, and Casanova and people like that. They make pilgrimages to go and see him. He's got this fantastic art collection that he's picked up on his travels. So he's got Velazquez, Murillo. Do we, do we know what his relationship with his parents was? Uh, no, I don't know. That's a very good question. So I don't know whether he... he I would assume that, that people wouldn't castrate their children unless they thought they were going to benefit personally from it. So they would probably think that their children would, you know send money to them if they made a lot of money and you could make an enormous amount of money as a castrato singer and the extraordinary thing tom is when do you think the last castrato singer retired uh, 20th century yeah 1913 so it wasn't actually banned by the papacy i've got it written down somewhere 1903 1903 it wasn't banned until uh the so you know it's still going on throughout the night it's not as fashionable but there i think there is one recording of a castrato singer on YouTube. So in other words, the last castrati were singing at a time when there was recording technology. Uh, and they had this incredible vocal range and stuff. I mean, that's kind of largely been lost, I suppose. Um, but that this that's an interesting thing because it's very different from most of the people we're talking about. I mean, this is a, a very cold-blooded economic decision. Yeah, and so I just wonder whether, whether um, you know, whether he felt grateful to his parents or resentful or well here's the interesting thing you can't have kids but you can still make love um and and castrati were prized for that reason because they could they could supposedly perform for hours um you know yes and not get you pregnant yeah so it's it is an interesting question i mean few of us would make that choice for our own children or, or would wish to have it made for us but did he i mean he was so rich as a result of this so on the subject of having sex and castration perfect lead in to my next 
um, my next choice, um, which is the great Peter Abelard. Ah, yes. Probably one of the most charismatic figures of medieval Europe. Brilliant theologian, brilliant rhetorician, um, described as a, a man possessed of inestimable cleverness, unsurpassed memory, superhuman capacity. He, he described himself as the only philosopher in the world. He was the star of the Paris schools. Um, people, girls swooned o- over him. He was terribly charismatic. Um, men flocked to hear his lectures. Um, so a- an absolute star. And he was employed by one of the canons at Notre Dame, um, a guy called Fulbert, to um, serve as tutor to Fulbert's niece, who was a, an equally brilliant woman called, um, well, young girl called Eloise. And um, Abelard, of course, had, had taken a vow of chastity. Did he, <laughs> did he let that get in the way of getting off with the incredibly beautiful, incredibly smart, um, incredibly charismatic Eloise? He did not. Um, and so they had an affair. Um, Eloise fell pregnant. Uh, Abelard sent Eloise off to his relatives in Brittany to have the baby, who was a boy, who was given the brilliant name of Astrolabe. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's kind of like calling your, I suppose, I don't know, calling your, your baby iPhone or something. <laughs> I mean, it's a wonderful name. Um, Eloise came back to, to Abelard in Paris Um there's a secret marriage um but by this point um Fulbert is and and and, and the, the relatives generally are, are starting to get a bit sopranos in their attitude <laughs> towards towards Abelard so Abelard sends Eloise off to a nunnery to keep her safe um he gets attacked uh in his own room gets pinned down they get out the pliers oh. and off off come his off come his goonies. and the rest is history so he's left maimed and and so humiliated by this, so traumatised that, that essentially this kind of brilliantly gifted public speaker retreats to a monastery in Saint-Denis and feels that he has nothing to offer, that he can't appear in public. But he's still Abelard. And so he starts investigating the, the traditions of, of the origins of Saint-Denis and disproves them. So this doesn't go down very well. So he's still up to his tricks. And basically he then leaves Saint-Denis, despite having taken a vow that he'll stay there. And he goes back onto the road. And again, he, he, he essentially he becomes the kind of, you know, the great star. Um, he, he, he keeps apart from, from Eloise, but they, they write to each other over the course of, of, of their life. Um, Abelard ends up um, accused of, of heresy. He gets officially silenced by the papacy. Um, but he remains such a, a kind of charismatic figure that he gets picked up by the Abbot of Cluny, which is the, the great monastery in Burgundy. And the Abbot of Cluny looks after to, uh, Abelard until he dies. And then when he dies, he sends Abelard to Eloise. And the Abbot of Cluny accompanies the coffin there abelard gets buried and a couple of decades later when eloise dies um she gets buried alongside abelard and the story is is that that when they open the tomb to put eloise's body beside abelard's abelard's body he he reaches up with his arms and and takes eloise in his arms and they oh it's moving it's moving yeah it is it is i mean it's an incredibly a a tragic one of the great tragic love stories but he's a bit different from our other eunuchs because he he doesn't owe his identity to his being a eunuch so no. it's not like Nazis or his Bible. identity gets taken away by it yes yeah so he, I mean, it genuinely is a mutilation not just of his body but of his entire career yes he, he feels himself to be mutilated uh, uh, humiliated by it um, and it's a kind of shadow over uh, uh, over his fame from that point on but of course it, it, it lends this tragic power to his story do you think we'd remember him so much if he hadn't had this sort of dreadful ordeal i think he'd still be remembered by students of of medieval christian thought because he's that significant he's that important um but but obviously you know there are all kinds of major christian thinkers in the middle ages that people don't really remember so do do people remember saint anselm i mean students of medieval theology do but he's not a household name whereas eloise and abelard i mean you know people write songs about them they're still the theme of novels and films and dramas and so yes i think it's it's a crucial part of that anyway um 
my final choice. My final choice. But I've gone out. I've gone big with my last choice. So it's a man called Kondraty Ivanovich Selivanov, and he's not merely uh, a eunuch, but he's a man who who persuades tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of other people to be eunuchs too. So he lives in the late 18th century in uh, Russia. Russia is as everybody will know, or at least a lot of our listeners will know, it's a place where weird sects and cults proliferate um, for centuries. And there was a sect called the, they were called the Klists, and they were kind of ecstatic flagellants. They went around beating and whipping themselves. Um, and Selivanov, uh, he's a peasant, and he basically leads a breakaway from the Klists. The Klists don't go far enough for him. He claims that he is both the Messiah and he's the former Tsar, uh, Peter the Third. So Russia has this great tradition of people pretending to be false Dimitris or false this sort of. Pret- Peter the Third is the one murdered by Catherine. Exactly, Bray. exactly. So Hazar in the uh, those who've seen the great. <laughs> so, um, so Kondrati Ivanovich Selivanov says uh, he's the son of God. He's the redeemer, and um, he wants lots of followers, and he calls them white doves. And he says, basically, we need to break with original sin, and the way to do that is to castrate yourself, or if you're a woman, to cut off your breasts. So he basically says, your genitals or your sort of sexual organs are their signs of the forbidden fruit that um, Adam and Eve took in the Garden of Eden. And to get back to our sort of pure pre-fall state, we need to cut them off, um, and they they do. So there are two ways of doing it. There's one thing called the lesser seal, which I think you just cut your cut your testicles off. And the greater seal is when you cut the lot off. Um, and they use hot iron. They do this with knives and with razors and stuff. And then they get a hot iron and they cauterize the wound. Um, if you've had the greater seal and you're a man, you need to c- carry a cow's horn to, through which you can urinate. Um, now, you would think that this wouldn't really catch on, but you'd be wrong. Because thousands of people, he, he becomes a big figure in St. Petersburg and he gets lots of recruits in St. Petersburg, in Moscow, in places like Odessa. So kind of burgeoning, growing cities. Dostoevsky talks about it. By the turn of the 20th century, there are probably about 100,000 Skopci, as they're called. So it's a big cult. The communists suppressed it. And, and before that, people tried to suppress it. And so some Skopci were forced into exile. So the uh, the end of the so at the founder Siek, there are so many Skopci in exile in Romania that they basically control the Bucharest cab trade. So if you get in a cab in Bucharest or indeed in, in perhaps in Budapest, then the chances are it will be driven by a member of the Skopci, so a man who's castrated himself. And people do this, you know, in thousands. It's incredibly of, popular. Yeah, thousands of people do this in a kind of frenzy, believing that this is the route to. Heaven, and it's only really stamped out during the Soviet Union. I think there's a claim that there are Skopci around, as certainly as late as the 1940s, and there are some people who think there may still be some now. They may flourish in some sort of nooks and crannies. I mean, you get what you people in the Church of England worrying that they're a bit, bit wishy-washy. Well, by these standards, I mean maybe they, this would be the way to to reinvigorate. Yeah, it's a it's a robust faith. Tom, there's no yes. doubt about that. It's it's demand. It's a demanding faith, but presumably it has its rewards. I can't imagine what they would be, but <laughs> well, yeah. Mm. I mean, and imagine if you then realise you've made a terrible mistake. Well, that would... There's no going back, is there? Especially if you got got to the cowhorn stage. I mean, that's a pretty bad. So my my last one. Um, we're going to China. Yeah. China is one of the um the the great centres of of world eunuchs, um, which is back. Oh, four thousand years so and the the Qin emperor um first emperor i mean already they've all the bureaucracy is run by by eunuchs so it's done both as a punishment but as a way of getting ahead yeah it's a shortcut <laughs> as it were it's like a graduate scheme <laughs> it's like a graduate scheme yes um and my my particular one is one we've somebody we've already talked about i think with michael wood in the uh, the thing we did on china and it's um zheng hei um, who lived between 1370-1435, and he's the great admiral who leads the um, the voyages of discovery that are sent out in the, the early 15th century. Um, he is a Muslim, although a Muslim of kind of quite an eccentric kind. So when he goes sailing, he, 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 he worships the great goddess of the sea. Okay, that's a very unusual kind of... <laughs> He um, he got captured um, in Yunnan, which was the last holdout of the uh, of the Mongol 
um, rulers of China um, by the Ming, who are kind of capturing it back at the end of the 14th century, gets captured, castrated, introduced into the um, Chinese imperial court, has a kind of you know meteoric rise rather in the way that Nazis did. Um, and basically gets pointed the, the admiral of these seven voyages that get sent out across the um, the Indian Ocean all the way to uh, as far as Africa. So he brings back ostriches. Um, he brings back zebras. He brings back a giraffe. Um, he also cleans the seas of pirates. So he captures the most notorious pirate of the age, brings him back to China, where the guy is predictably brutally killed. Um, the the king of of Ceylon, Sri Lanka, tries to oppose him. Um, bad idea. He gets taken back. Has to apologise. Um, and essentially, this is the kind of the great what if that you know, what if China had continued this outward bound approach? Yeah. Um, it's just on the the just just before the uh, the European expansion across the sea. So um, really, really fascinating figure. Um, still. He he basically gets forgotten in China because these voyages get buried. They Chinese imperial policy put slams the brakes. It's not necessary. Goes into reverse. So they get buried. But in recent times, he's he's become a very significant figure. Um, he is still commemorated to this day in China. Um, so the eleventh of July is the the the, the date that um, he first sailed um, in uh, in fourteen o five, and the eleventh of July to this day is Maritime Day in China. And what happened to him at the end when he got... I mean, did he get back and lead a... have a long, Gets, happy he, retirement? He, he died on one of the voyages and got buried at sea. Okay. And uh, on, the, on the topic of eunuchs lasting into the present day, um, do you know when the last imperial eunuch died? Um, I'd probably guess, again, Edwardian, pre-First World War, maybe 1910? Oh. 1996. No. Wow. That's a great fact. So that's somebody who. But hold on, how old was he? About 120. I mean, he must have been. Well, he must be one of those Chinese people who just eat very healthy. And <laughs> and so he must have been a boy, uh, uh, castrated at the imperial court. Yeah. So the question. So the question. If the, to sort of sum all this up, I mean, a lot of these people. These people, I suppose, can be divided into two categories. They're either religious maniacs, or they are people who have. You know, being a eunuch has allowed them to rise to play a part they might not otherwise have been because they're not a th- either because they're a singer or because they're a bureaucrat. Or I think there's a third category, which is pe- people embroiled in in grotesque love affairs. Yes, I suppose so. Yeah. Okay. So Sporus, Sporus, Sporus is, is is not a eunuch really. He's not treated as a eunuch. He's treated as a bride. Yeah, interesting. So that's that's weird. And then Abelard is is castrated as a punishment. So that's a kind of I think a third yeah. category perhaps. But the question then is, you know. Through thousands of years of human history, of sort of civilized history, as it were, there have been eunuchs. Um, we are unusual in not having eunuchs. Do you think eunuchs will come back? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, that I think is an impossible question to answer. I would have thought not because I can't imagine any circumstance in which international opinion would regard. Um, the harvesting of eunuchs as being in any way acceptable. You don't see the eunuch trade. But, you know the way things back. are going. Who knows? Who knows? I, I, I can't. I can't believe it. No. I mean, because because pretty much every every society would regard it as being beyond the pale. Now, it's a really interesting example of something that was taken for granted, no longer being accepted. Yes, although I suppose we do we we do have much more fluid attitudes to gender and things though now, don't we? I mean, people have you know, reassignment surgery and so on and so forth. So the idea of, of surgery per se or of changing gender is not anathema to us as it was to our to our, our predecessors. Yes, but eunuchs don't become women. Well, Sporus did. He No, he didn't because he that was what Nero wanted. Okay. And he offered prizes for people, who, you know, if, if, if there were surgeons who could could do the necessary um, surgery. And they couldn't. Um, to, to make him into a woman, but couldn't do it and couldn't implant a womb so prepare remains you know as prepare he remains kind of infertile um and, and what's going on with nero there tom i mean that's the real of all these ish, of all these subjects i mean a lot of these make sense you know you can understand that somebody is is deranged or that somebody is wants money but why does nero want to do that okay well i think I, i'm not going to answer that because there's there's an exhibition on nero coming up at the british museum 
and I think it might be a good idea to to see if we could do a, a, a podcast on Nero great. specifically. Great, I think that's a great um, so idea. So let's let's save that. So let's. I, I, and I think we've we've run on long enough as it is. Um, could I just put in a plea? Um, we're this is going out on Thursday. The tomorrow. So if you're listening to this on Thursday when it's dropped, so Friday, twenty third of April, St George's Day, I will be walking forty miles across London from one end to the other along a sports ley line so i'll be going from a cricket club in epping to lords to craven cottage to twickenham rugby stadium to a cricket club in chertsey and i'm doing that in aid of three homelessness charities to try and, and slay the dragon of homelessness dominic you are the saint george of our time i am saint george and um if you felt like sponsoring me, that would be hugely, hugely appreciated. You can find the link if you go to my Twitter page at Holland underscore Tom. The pinned tweet there, there is a promotional video showing me as a kind of rocky figure <laughs> uh, getting in training for this um, event. Uh, and there is a link that you could go and pay uh, if you wanted to contribute to that. So that would be very much see. If not, no worries. Um, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, we will be back next week with more podcasts but until then thanks very much for listening bye 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 thanks for listening to the rest is history for bonus episodes early access ad free listening and access to our chat community please sign up at restishistorypod.com that's restishistorypod.com Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom... How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe?